Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of Backstory, I'm Dana Lewis. The ground war in Ukraine is vicious, but so too is the information war. This week, the Kakova Dam in eastern Ukraine was destroyed. Thousands flee. The environmental damage untold. Russia controlled that dam since it invaded last year. Putin's war included occupying a nearby nuclear power plant, too. Russia is spinning the dam collapse as a Ukrainian shelling operation, denying responsibility, even saying the Ukrainians did it to stop a Russian advance. But in reality, Russia occupied and controlled the dam and mined the dam and is trying to block a Ukrainian counteroffensive. But everything about this war has been confusing. The Kremlin has torqued its motives for invading, misled its own people about the scale of the war, and it blames Europe and America for the conflict. Okay, so they've lied over and over again even denying they would invade in February of 2022. But in this upcoming interview with the author of Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia, you will hear Russia has spun disinformation long before Putin came to power in the Soviet Union. And it made a habit of using charged information and images to shape a narrative that, while false, is consumed as believable by many. All right, Jade McGlynn is the author of Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia, and she is a research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Jade, it's great to talk to you. Great to meet you. Thank you. It's great to meet you too. So you start your book with images of Red Square, military parades, um, talking about them and, and painting a good visual picture in your writing, and Russia showering itself with this unifying ceremony of defeat over the Nazis in World War II, or as Russians call it, the Great Patriotic War. Um, and, and you call it an obsession with the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the past, they are shaping current thinking. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how, why do you think that's significant? Because a lot of people celebrate war victories or resistance, um, you know, in their culture. Of course. I think it's significant for its intensity rather than because it's an exception. So, um, of course, every single nation looks back into its past to tell a story about who they are, why they're a nation, why they belong together, you know, why they're great, something to feel proud of, take some lessons from it. That's completely normal and a natural way of sort of building a coherent story. Um, I think one of the areas where things are starting to change is we don't really have ideology in the same way perhaps that we had in the 20th century. Now, really, history almost functions as this sort of parabolic role where you take what's good and what's bad, in particular World War II. And I think that this is a process that's happening sort of around around the world, um, particularly, um, well, yes, around the world, um, in the sense that people are looking to the past and trying to police the past as if um you know it was some sort of fragile heirloom rather than rather than history to understand what happened they want to take lessons from it and so these are processes that are happening um you know internationally but what i would say is i think there's something intense and marked about the way in which it's happening in russia which in some ways provide makes it useful in terms of a, a sort of a research focus because you can find things that happen in russia that are also happening elsewhere in the world perhaps more easily because it's so extreme. But I don't, it's certainly, um, it's not an unusual practice. I think it's more the way that this has become such um, a pivotal part of the political culture in Russia. 
I mean, if I can say as somebody who spent 12 years in Russia as a correspondent, I mean, Putin came to power and I was there. Um, and the parades on Red Square tended to be you know, a ceremony of honoring the, those who gave their lives in World War II. And just about every Russian family was touched by that because, you know, 30 million people, 25, 30 million, depending on the estimates, at least half of those were civilians. It's, it's almost every family could relate to it. And suddenly, about 10 years into Putin's rule, you start to see him start to surround himself with these images and the Kremlin start to promote them in a way that I had never quite seen before with, you know, the marching with, with photographs of people from their families. Um, and it, and it was seen almost by the Kremlin to be a kind of unifying political device rather than just a, a moment to mourn those who gave their lives in the past. Mm -hmm, certainly. I think you picked up on um, probably two of what I would call the key points there. So the first one is that um, there is this shift. It's not to say that there wasn't already, you, you know, um, certain kind of historical elements that were introduced early on. But certainly from 2012, there is this big shift because the the processes that the sort of Putinist regime had been using to legitimize itself no longer worked. Um, and the evidence of that emerged um, in the sort of mass protests around 2011 and 2012. And so there needed to be this shift and there needed to be this more coherent story about who is Russia, you know, why is Russia, all of these sort of big existential questions. And there wasn't really much to reach for beyond history because it's too multi-ethnic for ethno-nationalism. There's four official religions. There's no ideology. You can't do civic nationalism in a country like Russia for, for pretty kind of obvious um, political reasons. And so history was the one thing, as you rightly pointed out, you know, 89% of Russians cite it as the thing, as the event that they feel most proud of in their history, the, the victory over Nazism. And this was something that they could use. And they did this in a variety of ways, both by othering in the sense of putting in memory laws that make it a crime, you know, to discredit the memory of the Great Patriotic War, which on paper, I think to most Russians at least would sound very reasonable, but of course it's applied in a very um in a very haphazard way, um, like like all Russian law, um, as as a sort of a way to just shut down um the government's misuse. And you also there reference the immortal regiment where people walk with the um portraits of their um, family. But that was originally a civil society movement. I interviewed um, the founder for one of the three founders for my PhD. That was originally a civil society movement set up to keep the memory of the war apolitical, to keep it as you were referencing as it used to be about remembering the dead and the sacrifices. But in 2015, there was a hostile takeover and the state um, appropriated it for, for their own uses, even though many Russians still believe that it's a sort of grassroots organization. So, I mean, you've you've kind of addressed the politics of memory. Um, it in your book you call it historical framing. I don't know if you've you coined that phrase or you've taken it from elsewhere. It's pretending the desperate traumas of the past and even the triumphs were being repeated in real time. Can you mm -hmm. explain that? Yes. So this is my term, and the reason why I created it was to describe what I was seeing as essentially a very detailed and intensive and sustained, and I'm talking about sort of thousands of analogies, and it's these use of historical analogies um, to convince people that what is happening now is just like what happened in the past. And therefore, 
what happened in the past will happen again unless there is some way that that this is corrected um, or, you know, or it should happen again. And we have to therefore learn the lessons from the past. It's also using the past as a way to almost dictate your next moves. Psychologically, this is very effective. We know there have been studies, for example, there was a study at Stanford University by Thomas Gilovich, which shows in 1983, which shows that if people are given historical analogies, it very much, even if they're quite kind of super ones, it very much influences the policy decisions that they make. But um, this is how I sort of understood the media framing or the media, Russian state media presentation of core events in 2014 to 2015, which are still, you know, have an enormous influence on the way in particular that people see um, the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's it galvanizes the nation to support a war that an invasion of Ukraine, one of its neighbors, and, and killing fellow Slavs that probably no other platform uh, would be capable of doing. But are both sides guilty of it in the sense that there have been lots of analogies and parallels drawn about President Putin's invasion and what the Nazis did in terms of claiming mm. territory and people saying that, you know, P Putin and, and his regime, they used the term regime, are trying to, you know, gather back the lands that they lost in the collapse of the Soviet Union. So are both sides just as equally guilty? Well, I wouldn't use the word guilty, actually, for either case, because I think it's just, again, something that most people do. Most people use historical analogies. Often people will use historical framing. But yes, it's definitely a tactic that you can see on both sides. I think there are some elements I'd like to differentiate, though. For example, sure. um, Putin has been very clear. Putin clearly does have his own personal obsession with history. We know he spent most of coronavirus locked up with Kovalchuk. I mean, his bunker locked up with Kovalchuk and um, the state archives for company, um, which is not not a good way to spend coronavirus if there was a good way. Um, but and we see that in his essays. But um, and he has spoken about the importance, you know, of, of sort of regathering. So I think sometimes that's just a reflection of, of Putin's own kind of historical obsessions and historical references. In terms of the comparisons with Nazism, I agree with you. I'm, and I think that the overuse um, in the West of the 1930s and World War II analogies, I think it hinders rather than helps our understanding um, because there are clearly many differences. But again, it's not really functioning to help understanding. The whole purpose of using it is to express Russia is so evil, it's just like the most evil thing that we can think of. So again, we come back to this point where history, it's not about history, it's, it's about memory and, and what's good and what's bad. Yeah, it's a great, you, you paint your foe as evil mm -hmm. um and you very much start framing these things in black and white which which can be a dangerous oversimplification of very complex um conflicts but so so in your book it's interesting how many um and in other writings that you've done how many um statements and historical comparisons there's been with just generally this was done in the soviet union this is not president putin's i don't want to say brilliance or distortion yeah. uh, of of the past and and their their current and you know present danger uh but in fact you, you paint a pretty good picture of saying that this is sort of routine business in the soviet union where you 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 paint 
the West and and uh, and in particular America now, which is taking a lot of the brunt of the criticism inside Russia, um, mm -hmm. you know, as as somebody who's plotting to overthrow your state. Mm -hmm. No, it's true, exactly, and I think. Um, Do you have like other examples of that? Sure. Well, it builds it builds on those myths that were embedded within the Soviet Union. It builds on Soviet narratives that that still exist. I mean, in terms of other examples, so I think around sanctions, in particular, sanctions in 2014 and then sanctions since. There's been a lot of um, some some in the West have been perplexed by the way that that hasn't worked um, in any way to sort of undermine or doesn't appear to have worked in any way to undermine Russian support for 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 Putin's government or for for his his way of governing. But I mean, first of all, there's lots of evidence that it was never going to do that, both from within Russia and from outside. But also one of the things that has helped the, the government in this case, uh, the Russian government in this case, is that since 2014, they have depicted sanctions as an attempt to destroy Russia, just like the West destroyed the USSR. But this time, because they've learned from the mistakes and because Putin is not weak like Gorbachev in this narrative, um, you know, actually, Russia is going to facilitate a return to a fairer world order, to a more self-sufficient and stable um, Russia that's similar to like the Brezhnev or the Andropov eras of the Soviet Union. So that's very much the the paradigm within which sanctions are understood. Yes, the West is trying to destroy us again, but this time they won't. It won't work. President Yeltsin, the the predecessor of President Putin, who could take a punch. Is, is, is how I describe him. I mean, he could actually, um, despite all of the criticism of him, he he would allow a large room of criticism in in the newspapers in Russia, and 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 he he did not try to control them, and and could not at that point. But he he banned the Soviet anthem. Um, he renamed the KGB and dismantled part of it and made it the FSB. Um, he he tries to dis disentangle Russian identity from Soviet identity. Why why was that so important in this new um, independent state called Russia? Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, it was seen as important because it was a way to disentangle. It was also about disentangling not just Russia from the Soviet Union, but also the idea of Soviet greatness as Russian greatness um, and providing Russians a sort of a way to see themselves as, as separate from, from empire. I'm not saying that um, Yeltsin and people around Yeltsin didn't have any imperial notions of, of Russia and which countries should belong to Russia, but they did, of course, you know, famously say, we'll take as much sovereignty as you can swallow to, um, you know, to to the um, the sort of uh, the states, the different sort of regions um, and, and within the Russian Federation. And there was certainly a very, very different approach. Clearly, I mean, it's ne never, nothing's ever black and white. You also, of course, have these issues of Chechnya, which are far too complicated to go into now. But the point was that it was about providing a Russian identity that separated it from, I suppose, what we might call the imperial center. But I think by any measure, it failed. And um, but did, be, Before you talk about the fact that it failed, did he do that for a reason? Because, I mean, there, there was a there was a coup against Gorbachev, an attempted coup against Gorbachev. Yeltsin clearly understood there were a lot of dangers lurking. Did, mm -hmm. did he feel it was important to put certain things behind Russia's history in order to move on? Well, yes, um, in order to move on, exactly, in order to create a sort of post-Soviet Russian identity. And there's been quite a lot written on um, 
how Yeltsin tried to do that and how he kind of searched around for for a new national idea and they even had like an essay writing contest and but nothing really emerged from it and that's really the problem that then Vladimir Putin also faced is that there wasn't really a coherent post-Soviet Russian identity and the only thing that kind of worked was history especially because of the difficult position in Russia where you have I mean it's not unique to Russia we have it in the UK you have it in Spain but where you have um kind of well, what what is called in the Russian constitution, the state forming people. So the, the Russians, the ethnic Russians, who are sort of around 75 to, to 80% of the population, but you also have a large number of non-ethnic Russians who are indigenous to those lands. So how do you marry that without, you know, you can't give in too much to nationalism. Um, and this was one of the issues that Yeltsin found. And one of the ways that he he managed it was to describe the Russians as also victims of the Soviet Union. Um, but in the end, that was that was quite difficult um, to get people to really buy into for lots of mm. reasons. Um, but I think one of the key reasons was just the state of the economy, because you see from around if there was a lot of hope and optimism around the the sort of during the during and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, then by 1993, you already have a majority expressing nostalgia for, for the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, and 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 certainly the the older majority who were you know bemoaning the loss of of apartments and cars and uh, the, the the social support network of of the Soviet Union, however wobbly that was. But you've written about how Russians see the war; they sing themselves to sleep with their own lullabies. What do you mean? <laughs> It's a Russian phrase. So um, it's kind of like I suppose in American it would be to drink your Kool Aid. I just think it's a much lovelier <laughs> phrase. Um, and so it means where, in particular, I mean, this comment is not so much about Russians, the the population, though perhaps it could definitely be applied. But this is more about the elites and the people who created um, or sort of ramped up the propaganda and the way that they sort of came to believe their own propaganda um, over time, or certainly it re- reinforced um, their their own myths. And we clearly see that with the um, invasion, uh, the full scale invasion on twenty fourth of February, because. There's no way that anybody um, who was engaging with accurate intelligence on what was happening in Ukraine would have imagined that um, that Banderovsi were or sort of Nazi collaborators were roaming the streets and that Ukrainians would meet Russians with bread and salt. So, what is the war about? Do you think in if if the if the Russian public uh-huh. have, have swallowed, you know, the Nazi line? But what really do you think in the Kremlin's view? is the war about what why have they taken this on it's about russia it's about russia's status it's about russia's right it's about what you know in russian in the russian view in the kremlin view it would be about security but security in the sense of status this is russia's area russia has the right to um to control at least sort of eastern and central ukraine and um any evidence of Ukrainian identity or Ukrainianness is just a sign of extreme nationalism and it's just a weapon that has been created by the West, first by the Austro-Hungarian Empire and later then weaponized by um, the USA and, and its allies to destroy Russia. So, I mean, there's on that level, that works, I think, across a range of areas. But for me, what I find particularly interesting is also that Russia's entire historical narrative, the, the basis on which they've been creating this post-Soviet identity, it kind of collapses if Russia can't control Ukraine, because they can't show that they are this cultural great power if they can't convince people in Kharkiv to, to, to you know, join the, the Russian world. 
They can't show that they're this milita- militarily um, exceptional power. Again, if they can't take Kharkiv, which is what, 30, 20 to 30 kilometers from, from the Russian border. And also just the elements of it. If Kiev is, if Ukraine is its own separate identity, if R- Russia is not the inheritor of Rus and all of these different elements, it starts to unpick. And of course, it doesn't matter. I mean, all nations are constructed, all his, all national histories and national cultural memories are slightly made up. You know, I mean, it's not completely, but, you know, they might be based in something real, but then they're, you know, adapted to political needs. It doesn't actually matter. But it matters to the way that history is told in Russia because it's told and you know here the legacy of the Soviet Union is important as well and that sense of history as an interpretive framework for how life should be but um, it matters in Russia because the the Russian view of history is very essentialist there is a historical truth and um, you know even even if it can sometimes be a bit vague and, and vacillating but there is a historical truth and you either you are either sort of a great country with this great history or you're not, and it's very black and white. Um, so do Russians support the war? I mean, the, you, you said it's acquiescence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would stick with that, I think. Um, I think that broadly, yes, more, most, we could say that certainly a significant number, um, in my view, based on my research, it would certainly be a, a majority, and an easy majority, are willing to go along with the war. You then have a section, not a not inconsiderable section, who are pretty apathetic, and you know there are different types of apathy, but certainly some of those would be really passive opponents. And then you have your ever-dwindling number of, of active opponents, not because the war is becoming hugely popular, but because it's terrifying and many people to protest and many people have left. So I think for me, I don't like in the same way that, you know, I probably wouldn't speak about all English people or all British people. I try to avoid doing the same with Russia because it just doesn't reflect what my analysis shows me. Um, you know, there's many different types and also people's views change. But I think acquiescence is a good word. Um especially because if you think back to 2014, it was so popular, the annexation of Crimea and intervention in the Donbass was also incredibly popular. And that same sense of excitement. And to be honest with you, party, that festival atmosphere that was there in, you know, I remember um, in March 2014, it just isn't there. There is an anxiety. um, There is a lot of negative emotion. That negative emotion is often channeled towards a reason why people must support the army, they must do this, or they hate Ukrainians. But it's very, it's very different. The celebration of 2014. I, I have Russian friends just like you do, and uh, and it's, the, the the conversations are difficult. And there are people who are out of the country who certainly see the war one way, and probably see it in in the Western framing of it, and don't support it. Uh, but there are people who are still, you know, very much attached to Russia who can't even bring themselves to talk about it half the time. Um, the, you know, you said that they're confused. Um, some of them are apathetic. So, some of them have been, you know, so confused by the Kremlin, they don't know what to think. Mm. Well, I, I think definitely that's part I'm of... Not giving them, I'm not giving them a buy or a pass, by the way, unresponsive. No, no. No, but I i mean, I'm not a priest. It's not my job to sit and, and, and judge people anyway. I've made plenty of, of, of mistakes, but um, it's more, 
that that uh, the confusion point is an interesting one and a good and I think a very important one because that's part of the purpose of the Kremlin propaganda unlike maybe the Soviet propaganda which would try to I'm talking domestically here which would try to kind of impose a set view the Russian propaganda often makes people feel like I have no idea what the truth is maybe you know the truth is just something that you instinctually feel rather than find out you know in a sort of enlightenment manner and when that happens people rely on the sort of myths that you know that resonate with them emotionally um the sort of um the politics of memory and history that we've been speaking about and that anti-westernism so in a weird way even when people don't believe the propaganda they kind of end up in a position where they're still amenable to the same arguments or they still see things in a broadly similar way because that is almost the base that that is left by russian popular culture which of course the the kremlin has has manipulated and um you know funded its its own ideas through as well i mean there's a culture of staying under the radar right so in the soviet times you, you just didn't express opinion you worried about your neighbors you know spying on you and turning you in and even now that's apparently that is re recurring in russia now where if you say something negative about the war your neighbor might report you or if you're heard in a restaurant to be saying saying something critical that that can wind you know you, you can wind up in jail yeah i mean it's very unlikely you would end up in jail i think there have only been well not only there have been awful the terrible sort of 537 according to over there info actual political cases bought and they do tend to be for more not for like a one-off crime but you would certainly get an incredibly expensive fine um you know and have to go to and and, and you could even possibly be sort of arrested admittedly you wouldn't be sent to sort of prison but um I mean, that happened to somebody the other day because they were reading a Ukrainian book on a I can't remember if it was a train or a plane now mm. I mean so it's not it's just anything so of course it's not a great um it's not a great system for encouraging people to explore their views and their criticism of the war to put it mildly it's an incredible amount of there's an incredible amount of fear and i think in particular even if i compare it to this time even if i compare right now with this time last year the fear um and the amount and its presence is is marked and it had already increased considerably so i think it's dark of course it's dark days for Russia, but also maybe I think for for Russian researchers who are going to really struggle to be able to understand as we get into this kind of one and a half year point, where is where are public attitudes going? What is Russia's future? Do you think you you you've said before that you got depressed writing the the book or parts of the book, and that um, you, you don't feel that Russia's future is bright in any way, the way it's not the way it's unfolding right now. No, I don't. And I really hope I'm wrong. I would absolutely love to be wrong. Um, I don't. But then, you know, maybe people didn't see 1917 coming in 1916. Not that I think 1917 was, was good. I'm just saying, you know, these things are quite surprising. And the whole Putin system is built on balance. And clearly things are unbalanced. But my bigger worry, I suppose, if if I answer sort of as, as honestly as I can, is that it's my interpretation based on my research findings that a lot of Russian aggressive behavior since 2012 is built on a certain foundation, a certain resonance within Russian culture. And I just worry that that will still be there if even if or when this this dreadful war ends and that, you know, then somebody else, even if it becomes slightly more democratic, somebody else will come and notice the political power 
of those, I suppose, societal needs and, and answer them again in, in bad ways, which is how I understand what happened in a very symbiotic way with with Putin. Um, so that's that's my big worry is I feel like there needs to be a kind of a recalibration of 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 how Russia engages with its past and its its present and and all of these difficult, complicated questions in order that the past doesn't continue to sort of repeat itself in these ways. Because it provides for power what he's done. So the idea that somebody else is going to come along and, and be much more moderate and try to turn the clock back on any of these things um, is it may indeed be, you know, wishful thinking. I think so. And especially, you know, if you think about a nation that whatever happens, it doesn't seem likely that Russia is going to win this war in any sense that, you know, I mean, Russians, Russian people are not going to benefit, have not benefited from this war. People are going to be in economically dire straits as sanctions continue to to bite people. You know, a lot of men have died. A lot of young men have died. It's going to be a nation that's traumatized, that's cut off um, from the countries that culturally it's traditionally cared about and measured itself against most, i.e. in the West. Economically struggling, that's not all of the surveys are not just of Russia. It's a sort of human psychology thing suggests that people in that state are not going to want some kind of, you know, okay, let's have more federalization and explore more liberal democracy. It's that's people tend to want a sense of order and stability and a strong leader um, in such cases. Um, and so that's, that's why I feel um, so depressed, especially because right now, and I appreciate they're in an incredibly difficult position, but I don't really see the sort of, the sort of recognition of these problems by many of the Russian liberals who are based abroad. Um, so, but, you know, hopefully, like I said, I really, really hope I'm wrong. Just in the last question, I mean, uh, you know, I'll probably inadequately attempt to provide a bit of balance because we've been talking a lot about Russia mm -hmm. and Ukraine is suffering. I mean, Ukraine mm -hmm. is the one that's under a, a hail of rockets and, uh, man, you know, unmanned drones and cruise missiles and artillery fire every night. Mm -hmm. And the, the the war is being fought in Ukraine. I mean, essentially, there is there is some spillover into Russia, but the the the, the victims are mm -hmm. the Ukrainians. And I know you you recognize that, too. Um, what do you think happens now as just if we just kind of remove ourselves from the past and look to the future in the sense that now you have this, um, you know, mi military attempt by the Ukrainians to retake those lands. It is going to be very bloody, I think. Um, and it is going to be a longer struggle than probably, you know, many people want to acknowledge right now. But will it just feed the Kremlin assembly line of disinformation where they'll say, See, there you go. You know, they're attacking us, just like we said before. We're defending our troops. We're defending, um, you know, Russians who are in those territories that we've tried to we've tried to illegally annex. You know, it's not funny. It's outrageous. But, um, you know, how does it play out? Or is, does it eventually, you know, like a, a time bomb blow up at some point because, the, the the fallacy of of Putin's sh charade will be unveiled to everyone, and as the Russian army collapses backwards, um, the, the the Kremlin is going to be, be put into a life and death um, corner that they may not emerge. 
So, of course, it will fuel the Kremlin sort of disinformation or propaganda assembly line. But I mean, everything does. They'd find other material to put into it. So I'd never mm. normally leave that as a concern. Will it blow up in their faces? I suppose I'm quite sceptical that it will, to be honest, just because I don't think that, first of all, I mean, the the sort of the atomization of Russian society and their disengagement from kind of politics, it's almost as if the state is a thing that just happens to them. It's not something where, you know, when you speak to Russians, it's not as if they actually kind of could do anything about it. Um, and I think that it will, of course, um, and you see this a bit from the Belgorod incursions, um, it will, of course, make people, uh, to use Jeremy Morris's term, like defensively consolidate. So it's not so much rally around the flag, but okay, maybe the war wasn't a good idea, but you know what would be worse? Losing the war. Um, so there's going to be an element of that, which again is kind of understandable human reaction without wanting to sort of justify it. So I think I think that's the issue. I mean, in some ways, and I get a lot of criticism about this from fellow, not a lot, but I get some criticism about this from fellow Russianists. I kind of think we have to not, we have to focus on Ukraine's future, we being the West here, rather than rather than Russia's. And I think just on sort of deterring Russia, I don't think there's much we can do to change or influence Russian public opinion either way. And I also think it doesn't really matter ultimately, which I appreciate is a bit weird considering I focus on it, but I focus on it because I find it intellectually fascinating. I don't think that it makes a huge difference to what the Kremlin does or doesn't do either way. Um, and I think the best thing that could happen in the long run is that we help Ukraine to regain the territory that it wants. Perhaps for Crimea, that might be a longer term process because it can't really be done fully militarily. Um, and then we help Ukraine to become embedded within Western structures. We help Ukraine to become a successful country and that will then serve as an example, because ultimately that's what happened with the Soviet Union is that people wanted, you know, I mean, there are lots of different elements, but ultimately people did want a different a different way of living. But right now, many Russians would not be keen on, they have many sort of criticisms, they're not keen on the way of Western living, and we have many problems in the West. So part of me thinks that the, the opportunity here is to increase our own resilience, increase our own defence, increase Ukraine's defence, and start to focus on, you know, making democracy better for people. And in the end, Russians will want that too. And, you know, we should, when that time comes, we should, if if that, if that you know, desire is there, I think we should, we should try to, to meet and yeah. create structures. No, I, I think I understand. I think I understand what you're saying in the sense that it's, uh, it's important to understand how we got here. Yeah. And why why Putin has launched this war um, and and how they manipulate information within their space. But in the end, they are what they are. And you have to contain them and you have to fight them and fight for your Western values and fight for, for Ukraine's sovereignty and everybody else's sovereignty in the neighborhood before they too uh, find themselves facing the the same beast. So Jade McGlynn is a research fellow at the Department of War Studies, King's College London. The book is, and she's written many of them, but the latest one is author of The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia. And it's it's uh, a very good think. I mean, I, I, I appreciated reading it and, and so much uh, appreciate talking to you, Jade. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely the appreciation is likewise. It's mutual. And that's our backstory on the Russian disinformation, misinformation space. Oddly enough, you could say some of this cookie-cutter approach to looking surprised, acting concerned, denying everything, and blaming the other side has been adopted by some Western leaders. Just ask Donald Trump. <laughs>
We should be better at seeing through misinformation, but social media has made it even tougher and amplified much of it. Confusing times. So follow trusted media, read different sources of it to get closer to the truth. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory. Share it, and I'll talk to you again soon.